All right, you guys. So to begin our time together, I'm going to start by reading Psalm 29. You can go ahead and turn there with me if you would like. All right, so Psalm 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord and glory do his name. Worship the Lord in his splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord is power. The voice of the Lord is splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf of Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, vo- the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes, makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Thanks, Ellie. Can you guys hear me okay? Oh, there I am. Good morning. I don't know if you guys know this. I I have been thinking a lot lately about how often we do things and don't really uh, maybe explain them completely and and how I, you know, I I was mentioning to our our crew this morning as we were praying before service. It's like, because my, my hands are in so many different projects or whatever, I just assume everybody knows like why we're doing what we're doing. Do you ever do that? You probably do it with your kids sometimes, right? This matters. Go do it. And they're like, why? And you're like, because it matters to me. Um, but it, you know, when we have the scriptures read before we do a teaching here at the church, um, I really hope that it blesses you, but it's kind of for me. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of self-serving for me because before I teach, I like to have the scriptures read over me. Um, I like to listen to the word of God, I like to hear it read, and I like to remember that I am a pastor who's accountable to the scriptures. I'm a pastor who's accountable and that I possess no power and no ability outside of conveying to you via the Holy Spirit what the living word of God says. And that's a powerful thing to remember, and I want to remember every time I stand up in front of you guys that the word of God is what does the work here. It's the living word of God that changes us. So, A brief explanation as to why uh, we have scriptures read over these times. Usually they connect uh, to what we're going to be studying, but I hope you don't think me selfish, but that really is my desire is that my heart would be conditioned in hearing the word of God taught, that I would be submitted to it as I submit to it throughout the week in, in preparation. If you would turn with me to Luke's gospel, to the second chapter, what we're going to consider this morning as we look at this passage as we continue our Advent series, and this being the uh, third week of Advent, we're going to look at the most stupendous event in all the decades and centuries and millennia of human history. We're going to look at the moment where everything changed, and we're going to look at one of the most incredible stories that we probably all could quote most of the verses from. And I just want to remind you guys some things as we look at this passage that we can see this in a fresh way this morning, that we would see God's word in a whole new light. That's my goal for us. Because we have to remember that what was once a perfect creation, praised by the creator God as being good, was stained 
and was decaying and continues to decay by the failure of his greatest creation. And that would be human beings that were made in his image. The very thing that was supposed to represent him on earth began the process of destruction through disobedience there in the Garden of Eden, and we've continued that ever since. A horrific and tragic betrayal, death enters the scene and like a plague is unstoppable by any earthly force. And so God enters human flesh and changes the narrative. In the depth of this darkness, decay and death and the lingering promise of the ages finally comes to fruition and the words at last are spoken, today a savior was born for you. Those words should shake us to our core. Today, a Savior was born for you. To save you from what nothing else and no one else could ever save you from. No greater word could be spoken. No better news could be proclaimed as the hymn entitled from every stormy wind that blows declares, Heaven came down our souls to greet and glory crowned the mercy seat. Heaven came down to earth that night. We've listened in over the last couple of weeks and observed Mary's interaction with Gabriel. And he told her, you're going to have a son. We saw the humility of Mary in those moments. Then we saw the sharing of joy as she went to visit Elizabeth last week. And they had this incredible, joyful explosion there at Elizabeth's house as John the Baptist kicked things off, literally. You know, as Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, he just leaped for joy inside of me. He's filled with the Spirit, and Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit, and Mary is filled with the Spirit, and she, she sings this beautiful hymn known as the Magnificat. Some things pass in Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist is born. Zechariah remembers how to talk. And he praises the Lord, and things are going really well. Well, now something else happens, and the season changes. The transition happens. And that transition takes us into chapter 2. Because the moment has now come for Jesus to be born, but the circumstances, the scene, what's going on in the background is what I want to draw our attention to initially because understanding the times and what's going on in Jesus' day when he was born is so vital to understanding, I think, some beautiful truths in our own lives. So we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. I know it's not Christmas morning yet, but I just couldn't wait. There is a reason and a purpose. Next week we'll be looking at the Magi. For this morning, let's talk about what happened in those days. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, in Galilee to Judea, excuse me, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. He was to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. 
This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. It's oftentimes that my kids, when they look at their plate, they want to skip over the things that they're not so interested in and get right to the good stuff. It's very rare that you find the choicest meats left over on my kids' plates. No, it's the vegetables. It's the things that they don't really want to eat. But what's in the vegetables? You can say it. It's okay. The the nutrients. (laughs) The vitamins, right? The good stuff. But it's not not maybe the thing that you want to look at the most. But here's here's the point of this. We need to look at the whole plate. We need to eat the whole plate. I just, I'm using a food analogy because that connects with me. But this is what we're looking at here this morning, you guys. Don't miss the details and what the details add to the understanding of the Christmas story. The very first statement that should catch our attention is that Luke the historian clarifies and provides the background. says, in those days, in those days, what happened? Well, Caesar Augustus, decreed that the whole empire should be registered. Luke is always mindful of the importance of historical backdrop. He shows the background and the timing that the registration of the entire Roman Empire had now just been declared by Caesar Augustus. Now, we may know something about the Caesars, but do you remember that Augustus was the first legitimate one? That he was the first one to be called emperor, that he was the first one to rule in this way, that there was something special about Caesar Augustus. In fact, he was so special, Caesar Augustus wasn't his name. His real name was Caius Octavius. He came to be known as Augustus. He wanted to be known as Augustus because the word agur is associated to deity, and he began that entry of Caesar's being considered immortal, of being God's. That's why when we get down the line with other Caesars, you see that they were wanting to be worshipped because the title Caesar, they wanted to continue this idea that Augustus started that Caesar should be worshipped, not just obeyed. Augustus became the first emperor and he was moving toward this claim of deity on the part of the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. In fact, at his funeral, his mourners comforted themselves with the belief that he was a god and therefore immortal. That his physical body had just died, but he was ruling and reigning in some other way. The Roman Republic, at this moment in history, had passed away. Rome used to be a republic. When Caesar Augustus took over, it ceased to be a republic, and now it was an empire. It's incredible that the man who was starting off this belief that Caesar was God intercepted in time and space the God who became a man. 
that somehow when this man who rises up and is ruling absolutely over the known world at the time is intercepting in history with God becoming a man. This mightiest man of his time decreed that a census would be taken. And that census is what forced Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem. In those days, when the autocratic ruler and that empire had beaten the world into submission, Rome didn't win with fancy speech. Rome won because they beat everyone. They pulverized everybody into submission under their authority. The whole world was crushed under the foot of a tyrant. And in those days, when the entire world is being pressed into, being subjected to, This evil empire, Jesus was born. That's when God made his move. I think that's powerful. Notice one thing from the text. That when Caesar Augustus issued this decree, there was no appeal. There was no appeal. There was no court to stop him. There was no arguing. Even people who we would consider insignificant of no real upper class value or having an influential voice just did what they had to be, what they had been told to do. Joseph and Mary were nobodies. They were nobodies by the world's standards. They just are obeying exactly what Caesar Augustus has decreed for them to do. His rule was absolute. Everyone has to return to their hometown for registration. Historians note that there was not a significant war in this time period. During this registration, there's no significant war going on. That's fascinating to me. Because in the absence of war, we might think that there would be this collective cheer. Peace. Something we've been longing for. It's not cheerful. This isn't a good time. This isn't a happy, peaceful time. The world is silent because they've been beaten into subjection. They've been crushed and oppressed. The voices of dissent had been silenced. No one was allowed to speak up anymore. This isn't true peace. It wasn't a beautiful time. In fact, one commentator noted that after being beaten into submission and suppressed, this was the darkest hour the world has ever seen. I think you can make an argument for it looking at Roman rule and the absolutism of how they were being reigned over. And even though, this is a fascinating thought, even though the royal blood of David is flowing through Joseph's veins, he's having to obey Caesar Augustus. Even though the royal blood of David is in him. He's a descendant. He's having to walk and obey orders like everybody else. Are things as they seem in this situation? When you think about all the factors in play, when you think about all the details, are things actually what they seem? Or as Christians, are we like, nah-uh? Or for better, it's like, no. Are they what they seem? Not at all. Because we know who is inside Mary, Right? We cheated. We spent two weeks on this already. We know who is inside Mary. We know what's coming. We're anticipating it. Maybe not like me. You guys can stomp your feet. That's okay. But you guys, Joseph has to follow the order given and travel. But don't be fooled. 
don't be fooled by what you see that Augustus is in charge. That he's the one who's planned this. Nevertheless, it came at a cost, didn't it? The trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a three-day journey, 90 miles. Don't think about cars. Think about your feet, a donkey, and being nine months pregnant. Guys, that's hard for you, but the gals are connecting with this. (laughs) It sounds miserable to me. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to do it nine months pregnant. We have some gals in the church who are expecting little ones this month. We have several of them. Faith, you up for, uh, you know, 90-mile jot on a donkey? Sound like, don't sound like fun? No, thanks. Guys, even in the midst of these circumstances, which on the outside may look like people who are of no importance to the emperor doing exactly what they're being told to do, God is bringing about his plan and fulfilling his prophetic word because we know from scriptures the Savior was going to be born where? You could say it. Bethlehem. Where did Joseph and Mary live? So something's got to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And what is it? It's Caesar Augustus. He's a pawn. The most powerful man in the world is nothing but a pawn to get the will of God done. Never, ever forget that. Never forget that. Nothing is stopping our God from getting done what he wants to get done. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. God is getting his will done in this world, church. Whew. Got a little excited, sorry. You guys, we know that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem because of Micah 5.2. That whole chapter is incredible, but chapter 5, verse 2 says this. Bethlehem Ephrathah, I'll do that again. (laughs) Ephrathah. (laughs) you get the point you are small among the clans of judah one will come from you to be ruler over israel for me his origin is from antiquity from ancient times they believe this so well not only those who are looking for the messiah but even those the scribes who understood the scriptures because we'll talk about next week when we look at matthew's gospel account they quote this verse to herod because he says, where is this baby going to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. It says it in Micah 5 too. They go back to the prophets and show Herod, this is exactly where he's going to be born. Does anyone know what Bethlehem means? Extra credit. Did they put it up there yet? Okay, good. You're close with house. What? House of bread. Very good. Bethlehem means house of bread. Micah prophesied that the Savior would be born there. Why is that significant? Why? What's up behind you? Bethlehem equals house of bread. Why are you guys laughing at my slide? These two are like, it's what it means. Huh? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The bread of life was born in the house of bread. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's interesting. All right. I think that's cool. Because Jesus, Jesus was born there. He was born in Bethlehem. He says, I am the bread of life. Why are you seeking for bread that perishes? Don't miss this. Stop laughing. Don't miss this. You guys, that's important. That's significant. There's a connection there. All right, maybe not for everyone, but it is for me. Remember, part of the wonder of the nativity is not just what God did 
but it's the way he did it. Don't miss the details. Don't miss the details. The way that he did it was so purposeful from being born in the city that's called House of Bread and being the bread of life himself to Caesar Augustus thinking that he's actually, you know, getting a registration done. I'm going to register everybody and kind of flex my power on the world at this time. And all he's doing is bringing about the prophecies that God had given to his people hundreds of years before. He's just getting God's work done. No contrivance of human beings can thwart God's plan. All the aspirations and control that Caesar wielded was unbeknownst to him, working in cooperation with God's plan. Never forget that in our current time either. Nothing that's going on in our world today is stopping God from doing what he has already planned to do. So don't be disheartened, church. When you see powerful leaders flexing their power, they are nothing but pawns to bring about the will of God. They can't stop him. Hasn't changed today and it never will. So the moment finally comes. Look at verses 6 and 7. While they're there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, and then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There are two words translated in in the CSB and in most texts as well, in most Bible versions. It's translated guest room here in the CSB. <laughs> I actually listened to this word like for a minute and a half, trying to make sure I didn't mess it up, but now with what I did with Ephaphra, <laughs> it's pronounced pandokeon, by the way. Pandokeon. You have to in the back, pandokeon. It refers to a place for the host and provisions and an apartment. That's one type of an inn. But the second of the two words that are used is used here in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. It's cataluma. You might be familiar. Some people talk about this word here and there and its importance in Scripture. A cataluma was just an enclosure that travelers could drive their cattle into um, for the night, which sometimes there might be an apartment attached or a place to sleep, some kind of a room where you could crash. However, there was no food there. There would be water so that you could have provision for your animals, but there was no food, no host, no fanfare. And there was no room for them in the Cataluma. That's the word used here for in. Why is that fascinating? That means that she gave birth somewhere in some outbuilding or possibly a cave. There was no room for them in the Cataluma, which was the more crude of an inn. There's no room for them even there. That's how full Bethlehem is. And if you've been to Bethlehem, there's some caves there that kind of fit this idea. Kind of just a covering where you could go. I've been to a couple of them. And so when you think about this, this is primitive on a very, very raw level. This is very primitive conditions. And not even within the Cataluma is there space for the king of kings to enter human history. Even in a place that we would consider not good lodgings. This is far worse than the Motel 6. Not even there is there space for them. And the king of kings came into this world, entered this world in this place. 
G. Campbell Morgan takes us deeper. He says, when he came, he passed the court and passed the, and passed the dwelling place and passed the inn and passed the Cataluma and was born into this world so low down that no baby can ever be born lower. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. No baby could ever have been born lower. It would prove to be the theme of his life. Even the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't die a peaceful death. He died a torturous death on a Roman cross. Not only was Jesus used to poor conditions, he was used to humiliation. He was used to being seen as low and uncared about. That's your Savior. Why would we think that we deserve better? Why would we let it dishearten us when Jesus says, you're going to have tribulation in this world, and he spoke from experience that says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus showed us how it was going to be done. He showed us what the Christian life was going to look like. We didn't sign up for comfort. We didn't sign up for popularity. We didn't sign up to have our name in lights. We didn't sign up to have ease. We signed up to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is our reasonable worship, Paul says in Romans 12.1. And he says, so don't conform your mind to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Be transformed. Think differently. And we look and say, how? Think like Jesus. Have the heart and the mindset. And as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, have the humility of Jesus. Paul says, let us take this on. And if you want a picture of how humble Jesus is, think of where he was born. Because that was planned. And it didn't happen by accident. You guys, let's take this another detail deeper. Something I hadn't noticed before until this last week. Who wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in the manger? Who wrapped him up? Mary did, right? That's not normal. Typically you have help. Typically when giving birth, you're not alone. You're not doing that part on your own, are you? There was no midwife. There was no nurse. There was no doctor. It was just Mary giving birth in this cave or overhang to the king of kings. Mary wraps Jesus herself. She takes care of him herself. Have you ever thought about Joseph and Mary doing this on their own? And that God entrusted his son to them. Do you think they felt equipped? Do you think they felt prepared? God took care of them, didn't he? Not only was Jesus Mary's son, he was her firstborn son. 
there's some significance to that too. We think about firstborn, it's the first son that she had, that's true. But Jesus was so much more than the firstborn son, wasn't he? Of Mary. We know him as the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1.15. The firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. The firstborn among many brothers and sisters, Romans 8.29. Jesus is not just Mary's firstborn son. He is the firstborn in all these other respects as well. And we cannot forget that when we see the firstborn son, this is God in human flesh. And Colossians 1 gives us an incredible insight on that. We don't have time, but you should. You guys, at this point, the heavens cannot contain their excitement. They're about to cut loose. It's time to tell people. And you know, you would expect all the important people to know first, right? Some dignitaries, some higher up, some high-ranking people, they bring the good gifts. You know, you expect the people to find out that God would declare this amazing news to, to maybe be higher parts of society. And if you read this through a Jewish mindset and you say, in the same region, shepherds? That would cause you to pause for a second. Because this isn't the cream of the crop. Even though they're with the flock. (laughs) Okay, here it is. In the same region, it's not in the notes, I shouldn't have done it. In the same region... Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Let's just read the rest of this. It's so good. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Not normal. That's why the sign was given. Because I don't know any of the gals that have given birth this year that have looked for just that perfect animal feeding trough to put their newborns in. None of you probably went on Marketplace looking for that. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts. It says in verse 13, they're with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and, on, and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them, they returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're stoked. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart. She's meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Everything was exactly as the angels had said it would be. Interestingly enough, the sheep used for temple sacrifices in Jerusalem, were kept in the fields outside Bethlehem. That's where they raised them. Fascinating. As these shepherds are out there protecting their flocks from predators at night, because sheep are so unbelievably helpless. Unbelievably helpless. It's great that God calls us sheep, because it really is fitting and humbling. 
If you don't, if you're not humbled by how often scripture calls us sheep, you should go hang out with sheep. You'll be very humble. You'll be like, you are so stupid. You are dumb as a sack of rocks. And God's like, but I love you. Right? Because that's what a good shepherd does. You guys, an angel appears to these guys and it's terrifying. This is a terrifying thing. Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about Mary's interaction with Gabriel and how the thing that upset her the most was what Gabriel said, not his presence. Well, these shepherds have a whole different experience. They're blown away by the sight of these angels. They're terrified. And he's like, chill, boys. That's the paraphrase for news. He says, this is, this is good. The glory of the Lord is shining around them. And through the angel, God tells the shepherds the meaning of this most significant event in cosmic history. And the message is clear and it's simple and we need to grab it. Christ's coming means peace. The coming of Jesus means peace peace for all mankind and we need to see this the way it's intended to be seen in scripture because you can wish for nothing better for anyone than shalom that's a word for peace in hebrew they still greet each other with that if it's a sabbath day they'll pass you in the street and go shabbat shalom peaceful sabbath You guys, peace is such a huge part of the narrative of Scripture. This peace that's being given in this time is available for all. And when and if we receive what God wants to give us, we have peace. If we receive what God has for us, we will have peace. But it may not be what you're thinking. It may not be the way that you think it will be in your life. I'm going to expound on that in a moment. But I want you to notice something because this is how we are connected to peace. This is how peace comes into our lives. Notice that the angel uses three names to identify the one who would bring this peace. Who is going to bring this peace? In the Greek, there's no articles. The three names spoken by the angel in the original text read this way. There is born to you this day in the city of David, Savior Christ Lord. There is born to you this day in the city of David, Savior Lord. Christ Lord. He is all three in one. The sign given would lead them straight to Mary and Joseph, and before they would have time to respond to the sign, suddenly a chorus of angels light up the night sky, and they're singing this song. Glory to God in the highest heaven. Peace on earth to people he favors. I can wait a bit to sing this song with the angels, but man, I wish I was there. Man, I wish I could hear this. I know one day we'll hear the angels sing, but I would really have liked to have been in the hills that night and listen to them just rock that countryside. All this revealed to shepherds. How surprising that the profound message of peace was entrusted to shepherds. They were a despised class of people. They were outcasts from respectable society. Their honesty, integrity was so questionable, they weren't even allowed to testify in court in those days. That's how questionable their integrity was. These particular shepherds were probably pious Jews because of the flocks they were shepherding, but they were still part of an outcast class through whom God chose to reveal the meaning of the Savior's birth. 
Bruce Larson in his commentary notes this. There is an old saying that war is too important to be left to the generals. I suggest peace is too important to be left to the diplomats. The professionals have messed it up again and again. In giving this message to the shepherds, God bypassed the professional peacemakers. I love that. That's awesome. G.K. Chesterton writes an entire essay about how the best messages to be delivered should not be delivered by the experts, but by those who are still in awe of the message they're bearing. Wonderful essay. Can't recommend it enough. But think about that. God entrusts it to the lowly. I guess it's true what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. He says, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. We could put shepherds here, I guess. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. Who's going to receive all the glory for the message that the shepherds have to share with the world? Only God. God is the one who's going to receive the glory for they bear an angelic message and they are not trained messengers, are they? Paul continues in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. The shepherds are perfect examples of this. And as they hurry to see and find Joseph and Mary, it changes everything for them because seeing was believing. They saw Jesus lying in that manger They told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child and all who heard the shepherds were blown away. What are you talking about? It's incredible. It's kind of fun when you see shepherds just turn into pastors, preachers, teachers. Start going around proclaiming the good news. They're just preaching the gospel, baby. You can take the baby out if that bothers you. The coming of Jesus is ushering in this new era of peace, but not peace like we've understood it before. And this is the point I was making before, and I'll bring it home here. It's peace on earth. And it's peace for people he favors, those who are in Christ. Whom does the Father favor the most? You're like, God doesn't play favorites. It's not what I mean by favor. Who is closest to the Father? Who knows him better than anyone? If you're answering the Son, you're correct. And who are we in? Jesus said it really well, didn't he? Especially in John chapter 17. Peter and I were talking about this earlier. I'm in the Father and you're in me and we're together and we're one. All about unity. We taught that message talking about church unity out of John 17 just a couple months ago. Talking about this amazing unity that we have in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, loved by the Father, how he brings us into the fellowship of the Godhead. We are the ones in Christ because of what he has done for us and us receiving that free gift of salvation. We're the ones who receive peace because it's with us that he is well pleased because he is pleased with the son. Yeah, that's okay to be excited about. 
That's a great thing. He is pleased with us because he's pleased with Jesus. He's not pleased with me because of my skills. I don't have enough. I'm not enough. But because Jesus loves me, I'm enough. And so are you. And that's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And if we believe in him, we will live eternally. And I hope that every person that's watching or hearing this right now will watch it someday on an archived message realizes how much God gave up to save you from your sin. You guys, Jesus loves us so much. The Father sent him to us. And as the Father declared over Jesus when he was baptized, when all the people were baptized in Luke 3, 21, Jesus also was baptized. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And all those in Christ Jesus can say, amen, because we are well pleasing to God now in Christ. (laughs) that's how god brought peace to earth don't think about quiet don't confuse quiet with peace you see caesar augustus would probably claim that there was peace at this time because of his rule that's called quiet it's not peace Peace comes when mankind, when human beings, where men and women alike come to know Jesus Christ and become well-pleasing to God. That is when true peace happens. And that's the message of peace that we share with others. We aren't promoting quiet. We are promoting being right with God. And Jesus is the only way that we become right with God. It is the only pathway to peace. There is no other way. And in Christ alone, we turn from the failure of Adam and enter into the peace of Christ because Jesus was well-pleasing to the Father and continues to be for all time. As Mary humbly meditates on what's happening and treasures it in her heart, I think that we could do the same. I think that we should meditate on this. Where is my peace coming from? Do I just want quiet in my life? Or do I recognize that in Jesus Christ, I have been given true peace? Because now, because of him, I'm well-pleasing to God. Christian, I need you to hear me, not just the Christians in the room, but all Christians. Church, I need you to hear me. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you? You can say yeah. Are you guys in Christ Jesus? He's pleased with you. According to the scriptures, he's pleased with you. He loves you and he not only loves you, he likes you. I know that sounds weird, but I think it makes sense. And every time I say it, I want to say it again. Because we talk about sometimes you feel like your family's forced to love you. God isn't forced to love you. He loves you. And he even likes you. He wants you with him. Jesus prayed that to the Father in John 17 as well. He says, 
I want them to be where I am. I want these that you have given to me to see me in my glory. I want them with me. My God, shepherds are erupting in praise as they return to the fields. They were to proclaim the best news this world had ever heard, that the Savior had come and peace was now available for human beings. True peace. Worship team, would you come up with me? One final thought. Um, I feel like someone needs to get saved. I want to ask that you guys would bow your heads with me. Um, You guys know me pretty well. I don't do this very often. I feel like someone needs to get saved in this room. I feel like someone's resisting the Lord. And um, you've heard the gospel preached, and I think that it's time to respond. I think this is your moment. I can't make this be your moment. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the one who calls you to himself. This is a work of God that's happening, and if you are feeling that pressure on your heart, if you are feeling the Lord calling to you right now, I want to lead you in a prayer, and I want you to come up and talk to me after service, and I want to pray with you, and I want to encourage you, and I want to put some believers around you so that you can now walk in the Spirit and no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, I don't know who it is, but I strongly believe that you are saying someone here needs to get saved this morning. I don't pretend to control this, to have power over it. This is you. This is your Holy Spirit working. And for whatever reason, Lord, I ask that you would touch that heart powerfully now and that there would be a break of the dam that the walls that have been built up between this person and you would come crumbling to the ground and that they would receive you, Jesus, as Messiah, Savior, Lord. That this person would agree with me in prayer that they have fallen short of the mark, that they have sinned against you and that sin has separated them, God, from you and that through believing in Jesus, confessing their sin, believing in their heart, Jesus, that you are Lord. And confessing with their mouths that you, Father, have raised him from the dead, that they will be saved in this moment. And so, Lord, for the person in this room that needs to hear that, I ask that you pour your Holy Spirit into them that they would be saved by your power, by your ability. Give this person the courage to come forward, to talk to their church family, to celebrate this moment. Lord, as we celebrate together, as we worship you for a little bit, as we just express our gratitude and our hearts to you, 
Lord, I just agree with these words that Joseph Bailey wrote on the meaning of Christmas. And I want to speak these over this church. Tonight I will sing praise to the Father. Who stood on the heaven's threshold and said farewell to his son as he stepped across the stars to Bethlehem. And I will sing praise to the infinite, eternal Son who became most finite, a baby who would one day be executed for my crime. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him in the stable. Praise him in the church and praise him on the streets. And Jesus forever be praised in my heart. Jesus, what a beautiful thing you did for us. you would lay down your life that you would come as humbly as you came so Lord just give us a moment here to celebrate you to love you in our hearts Lord so that we can love you with our very lives with every moment of our lives that our physical lives would just be an outpouring of what you've done in our hearts And Jesus, that we would celebrate Advent this year in a way that we never have, that we would remember. Lord, that we would be excited for the second Advent. Jesus, as we just are on the edges of our seats waiting for your return. Praise you in the heavens. Praise you in the stable. And praise you in our hearts. Let's take a moment. Let's just keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Let's just let the Lord speak. Let's do what Mary did in these circumstances and just meditate on the Lord and what's happening. Let's let God stir our hearts to response as we close our time with song. But let's just stay in a point and in a posture of prayer for a few minutes.